Welcome to episode 220 of X Lapsed, where you may think we're talking about an issue of X-Force. But no, no we're not. We're actually talking about a story that's uh, leaking out of the last issue of X-Force we read, and it's uh, dripping into the pages of Wolverine. So uh, let's hop into it. This is Wolverine Volume 7, number 13, had an August 2021 cover date, and a legacy number of 355. Stories called What They Did in the Shadows, written by Benjamin Percy, pencils Scott Eaton, inks Oren Jr., colors Matthew Wilson, letters VCs Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, edits Amaro Basso, White Sabolski, cover price four bucks, went on sale June 23 of 2021. Now, we open at the security biome, and it is 10.04 p.m., Sage calls in a combat formation plan to our titular hero in, in one of, like, the four or five pages we're actually going to see him in. Also Beast. Now, uh, Sage informs them that there is a terrorist cell on the loose at the gala, and it's the formerly zombified Terra Verdian ambassador. So, uh, oh my stars and garters, hmm. We jump to 11.01 p.m., so just shy of an hour later, uh, where we see an old couple who... I'm not sure if we're supposed to recognize them, but uh, whatever the case, they are off jittering their bugs right there in front of God and everybody. Now, the old man is reminded by his wife, or woman, I don't know, that uh, he's got to go pee, and so he heads to the bathroom. Uh, Now, as he walks there, I think we get subjected to some more good old-fashioned Marvel star-effing, though I couldn't even begin to guess who some of these celebrities might be. So, the old man hits the loo when a Swamp Thing-looking thing reaches out from the sink or the toilet, or the, I don't know, multi, multi-faceted multi toilet sink, whatever water source this is, and uh, grabs the poor old man around the throat. At this point, Wolverine arrives, snicks, and attacks. Double-page spread of roll call and cred. Our characters include Wolverine, Sage, Kid Omega, Beast, Domino, and Deadpool. Now, Beast is off looking for Ambassador Gabriel Gomez while in communication with Sage. He walks past an inebriated Nightcrawler, who, I tell you what, I can't read. I can't wait to read more about in a, a couple episodes' time. Uh, we need some way of X in our lives. Now, Gabby is dancing with a regular old flat scan, who she then attacks with her telefloronic tendrils. And so Beast tackles her. Now, she refers to the Krakoans as colonists for what they did to Terra Verde, and I'm not sure that's quite the right term for it, but uh, I guess we'll allow it. Now, the flat-scan dude that she attacked is still kind of freaked out from the attack, as you might imagine, and so Quentin Quire does the old Professor X mind-wipe on him and uh, includes a happy ending just for kicks. So, why not? 
We swap scenes back over to Wolverine fighting the uh, the swampy Terra Floridian, um, and we get a good idea here that Wolverine literally hasn't the foggiest idea what Beast actually did to Terra Verde. You know, during the tussle, he claims that he went there to help. You know, Wolverine, Domino, and Quentin did go there probably, boy, right before X of Tens, I think. So um, he went there to help is, the, is what the assumption he was under. Now, the swampy ambassador fills him in on the Beast's telefloronic programming, and uh, he, the telefloridian menace, claims that he's no longer under Beast's control and vows to, you know, kill the Krakowans. We shift scenes to a little bit later on. It's 11.31pm, and we're on board the Marauder. Christian Frost is sailing among the dolphins with all that Shi'ar cargo that we saw delivered in probably, I think it was Marauders, the, uh, the first part of the uh, Hellfire Gala here, where Emma received a shipment of something from uh, the Shi'ar that she did not know she ordered. So, huh. Anyway, Christian and the Marauder are attacked by an unseen other, and uh, Christian is dumped overboard. Huh. Well, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But first, back to the gala. Domino is dealing with more swamp things, and she utilizes some trademark Percy unnatural dialogue by mentioning forest fires and controlled burns while she punches a baddie with her flaming fist. Then, Deadpool shows up. Friggin' finally. Together they fight a Terra Verdian. Deadpool fires a bazooka at the poor goof. Next up, we swap scenes back over to wherever the hell Sage is hanging out. Um, is it the point? Is it a different security biome? Does it even matter? Um, anyway, Beast is there, and he's really keen on, uh, well, doubling down on his mental enslavement of Terra Verde. You know, they're starting to get their wits back about him, and uh, he ain't liking that. Well, Sage, eh, she doesn't like that idea so much. And Beast doesn't like Sage's sass, and he challenges her. And so he gets a very stiff slap to the face as a result, and by stiff... I mean that the art makes it look like they're two very poorly articulated action figures uh, slapping one another. Um, Now, Sage boots Beast from her office and proclaims that she is going to fix everything. And so, we get an info page. Now, this is all about uh, Sage's diplomatic uh, endeavors here with uh, Terra Verde. We find out that X-Force was told to stand down, and Terra Verde was uh, promised an armistice. So, uh, you know, a treaty, a peace uh, offering here. Now, Terra Verde, as a nation, was offered the following, in addition to the whole, you know, stopping the mind control thing, uh, one billion U.S. dollars. So, um, I guess money ain't no thing, so I have to ask again, why in the hell do we need an X-Corp? I mean, why do we need them as a concept, and why in the hell do we need them as a book? Ugh. Um, also, Krakoa will back off from Terra Verde's Telefloronics deal, so... There might be some competition in the marketplace for Miracle Meds pretty soon. As we found out um, back in, boy, what was it, X-Force number uh, five or six, that uh, Terra Verde's Telefloronics were on par, if not better, than the Krakoan Magic Meds in in some ways. Uh, Finally, Terra Verde can back out of their Krakoan trade deal, so their yes turns to a no, and they're free to uh, do what they're going to do. Now, in return for these concessions, um, the nation is sworn to silence for the whole Michigas here, the, you know, the zombification and all that. Now, this is as in the entire country has taken a vow of silence, so 
not only the government, but like some idiot 14-year-old Terra Verdean can't even like tweet about it. You know, they are totally sworn to secrecy here. From here, we jump back to comics and we're at the bar. Wolverine's having a drink with a Terra Verdean and is apologetic about what Beast did to he and his country. Though he doesn't seem all that angry about it. Um, And I mean, Beast and Wolverine have bumped heads quite a bit during this run here. And, I mean, especially, we can go back to that time where Beast frog-marched Colossus into Krakoa before X attends, and Wolverine just lost his mind. But now, after Beast has zombified and enslaved an entire nation, Wolverine, all he can muster is like a, yeah, it sucks, (laughs) you know, it sucks to be you guys, Uh, sorry about that. Uh, Seems kind of weird. Anyway, then, Deadpool and Domino head in. And Deadpool is happy to be considered an honorary mutant. And so they all drink. And those old people from the beginning dance. Uh, Again, I'm not sure if they're supposed to be anybody. And, you know, I gotta ask. I probably shouldn't, but I have to. Domino and Deadpool just walked in, right? Did they just, like, finish killing some Terra Verdians? I mean, bazookas don't usually, you know, end in someone eating a Band-Aid, right? Uh, It's usually far worse than that, um... It's probably best just not to think about that at all, right? Um, I mean, does Domino belong in the hole? Yeah, let's let's not worry about that. Uh, we jump ahead to 1.20 a.m. And we join Beast and Emma Frost as they have a chat on a balcony. Now, Beast is pretty far gone at this point. Um, he is to the point where he's justifying just about everything he's done uh, and is continuing to do as being for the better good of mutantum. Now, he compares what he did in zombifying an entire nation to uh, the terraformation of Mars. Which, you know, if you tilt your head, if you squint, and maybe have a few, uh, a few stiff drinks, actually almost makes sense, right? Um, but, you know, that said, it doesn't make sense, of course, but I can totally see someone in his position grasping at any old straw to excuse his behaviors. They then talk a bit about God while uh, quoting Voltaire, which tells me that Ben Percy has the V encyclopedia uh, out at present uh, and would like to tell us what he learned. Uh, Now, during this conversation, Beast compares Krakoa to God. Now, he feels as though, as a god, Krakoa needs to instill fear and give a feeling of omnipresence, which is why he feels justified in spying and, you know, zombifying and controlling. Now, Emma calls him a bastard. Beast happily accepts this, claiming that, you know what? During these times, someone needs to be a bastard. And uh, if it's him, he'll take it. Sage then interrupts the chat by calling in that the Marauder has gone off course and is currently docked off the coast of... Any guesses? Any guesses where it's currently docked? Oh, come on, you know this one. You know this one. Where do we always go? Madra friggin' poor. Oh boy, the lawless land of Madra poor. That's where we're gonna be going again. Yeah, Krakoa, help us. Um, now we close out with a shot of the Marauder as it's engulfed in an inferno. Hmm. Before we close, we have an info page, and it's basically Deadpool begging to join X Force. And you know, it's not like he's got his own series at the moment. Uh, unless we're counting that red, white, and blood or whatever the hell it is. Um, but uh, he doesn't have an ongoing. Throw him an X-Force. Why the hell not? I could uh, definitely get behind that. But that's where we leave it. Uh, next time out, we're going to be kicking off the final three 
issues of the Hellfire Gala, and um, well, we're going to end with a bang, it seems. Uh, next time, we've got Sword, which uh, a lot of people have had spoiled for them. Um, I had that spoiled for me, I think the day before it actually came out. Somebody spoiled that for me, the events of uh, Sword, which I won't say right now, just in case uh, anybody is waiting for that episode to uh, in order to read along with me, but... Um, had I experienced that firsthand as uh, I was intended to, I would have uh, I would have popped for it. But uh, well, I didn't get that opportunity. So uh, thank you, Internet. Um, after a sword, we've got Way of X, which is always a treat. And then we're gonna wrap things up with X Factor, where well, something's going to happen, and uh, for many of us, it's already been spoiled. So uh, I can't wait to get there, so I can finally stop pretending that I don't know what it is. <laughs> And uh, another one where, had I experienced it the way I was supposed to, I would have popped for it. But um, sadly, that just wasn't in the cards for your humble, fumbling, stumbling, ex-lapsed host. But uh, we'll talk about that more later here. Uh, For now, let's talk about this issue of... uh, I swear I was going to call it an issue of X-Force, and it wasn't even as a joke. But uh, it wasn't (laughs) an issue of X-Force. It was actually Wolverine. Um, Not that we would know it. Because uh, Wolverine is... He's in this book so infrequently that I I almost feel bad for him here. Um, I feel like readers of Wolverine will be uh, disappointed. And we know from going through the sales charts that there are definitely people who only buy uh, the flagship X-Men and Wolverine. They don't buy the other books. So if you're buying this, you're going to be disappointed. I, however, was not. I... I actually quite enjoyed this. I know I had some fun with it during the synopsis here, but uh, I enjoyed this probably for all the reasons I shouldn't have enjoyed it. Um, Let's talk about a few things that I feel didn't work, okay, before we get into the good stuff here. The Terra Verde stuff, a bit hard to swallow. Um, It seems like it all kind of fixed itself a little too easily. It's too easy and out, right? We gotta. I mean, we talk about suspension of disbelief. All of us, you know, up our own asses, <laughs> and analysts of fiction, will talk about, uh, you know, the ability to suspend disbelief. And let's go with that. If we can suspend our disbelief enough to think that there are mutants, superheroes, gods walking the earth, an island, a sentient island, a terraformation of Mars, stuff like that. Sure. <laughs> okay. That's stuff that I feel uh, we can't really compare to real life. So we can kind of detach. You know, we can we can do the suspension of disbelief there because we're just so far gone at that point that there's no comparing it to the real world, right? But let's think about Terra Verde here. Not as a nation of plant people, but just as a nation of people. Um... How has nobody figured this out yet, that they are controlled? Is Terra Verde like a totally insular nation? Do they have, are their borders like barricaded where no one can get in, no one can get out, information can't get in, information can't get out? Does nobody in Terra Verde have friends or family outside the borders of Terra Verde? Do none of them have the internet? I mean... People should know about this already. It shouldn't be this grand secret. And while I'm not suggesting there be like a one-to-one, anybody who realizes that Terra Verde is acting strange will automatically assume that, oh, it's the Krakoans who did it. 
but just the 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 fact that they are acting different than they they had been should be on somebody's radar that there's something afoot there, right? Um, and from what we know, there isn't. So while I can suspend my disbelief enough to accept that there are gods walking the planet, I can't when it comes to a nation acting weird, an entire nation acting bizarre, and nobody noticing it. Because had that happened in the real world, I mean, the world gets smaller by the day, right? We all... We can know things that are going on across the planet just by opening up our laptops or pulling our phone out of our pocket. So Terra Verde acting weird should be known, uh, or at least there, there should be some ears perked to it, and uh, there aren't. So this is just all this all ties up a little too neatly, and, and not that I'm advocating for the extension of the story, because frankly, if we never see the Terra, Terra Verdans again, that's fine. <laughs> I don't need to see them, but... Uh, I'm guessing we probably will because they have a competitor to the Magic Meds and X-Corp desperately needs a story to tell, so we're probably going to see this play out there. So uh, I think we've got the uh, world's worst-tasting peanut butter cup in store for us there. We're going to have someone running down one street holding (laughs) X-Corp, someone running down another street carrying uh, Terra Verde, and they're going to crash into each other, creating... An ungodly abomination of, uh, of flavor. But uh, we'll worry about that if and when it comes to pass. That said, I said I enjoyed this issue, and I did. And what I enjoyed about it was something that I don't think we're supposed to enjoy, and that is Beast's point of view. Now, Beast, yeah, you know, we've talked a lot about Beast, and it's actually a question that I've been posing um, in various Facebook groups of, of late and on Instagram as well, just uh, asking what, what are people's thoughts on Beast right now? How do we take him? Do we take him as just a sociopath? Do we take him as a lunatic? Do we take him as evil? You know, I think evil is probably the best term for it. Is he outright evil, or is he somewhat justified in his actions? Is he just doing his job? And is this what his job should be? You know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of nebulous questions, right? We have uh, a lot of different directions we can go from that, and I think it's something that's worthy of discussion. And so, let's discuss it. Um, Beast's point of view here. He uh, sees Krakoa as a god that needs to be omnipresent and needs to kind of have its fingers in every pot. And that's all due to the, uh, the future of mutant kind, right? Uh, the magic meds are a big deal. And so he needs to make sure that their interests are covered. You know, their interests are being served. So... Terra Verde posing a threat, or at least competition to that, is something that he would want to stop by any means necessary. And we've seen him be very ruthless. We've seen him kill people. We saw him kill a Terra Verdin, right? Uh, the uh, the son of the president, I believe. He, uh, he either I think he smothered him or something. Um, but that just led to the you know the organic uh, telefloronics doing its hoodoo. And so, perhaps, in zombifying and in mentally enslaving an entire nation, he saw that as a lesser of two evils to committing genocide or mass murder. And, and again, I'm not being an advocate for the beast here, because those are both very bad decisions, right? Those are very problematic uh, decisions. And uh, I am in no way endorsing either. But from the Beast's point of view here, um, I mean, even in this issue, he's like, you know, someone's got to be a bastard. It, it, it might as well be me. You know, he'll take that. He knows that every story needs a villain. And uh, 
I, I mean, when we talk about villains in in fiction and in real life, uh, people who many people agree are villains, they never see themselves as villains. They don't. Nobody sees themselves as evil. I mean, this isn't the Silver Age anymore. We don't have a Brotherhood of Evil mutants, right? Uh, I mean, I mean, fingers crossed. Anything can happen, but the idea that someone can see themselves as being evil is maybe a little passé, a little dated. And so Beast here, in order to assuage him of those feelings of a concern, worry, doubt, he justifies it. He justifies his behavior here. He compares Krakoa to a god. He compares the, you know, uh, kind of like the uh, the high tide raises all boats thing, where if Krakoa's doing well, then mutants are doing well. Mutants everywhere are doing well if Krakoa is doing well. It almost makes sense. Almost. Of course, it doesn't. It's madness. But for someone in Beast's position, yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense here. He's doing what he can, and he's he's actually engaging in the lesser of two evils to accomplish his goals here, at least in his own mind, right? I mean, that's something we can debate and argue, but uh, we won't, just, uh, you know, for brevity's sake. But I could totally see Beast justifying this. I love that he compares what he did to the terraformation of Mars. Not because it's a good one-to-one um, comparison, but because, I mean, it's human. I think we've all been in arguments with uh, a friend, a significant other, uh, a boss, a peer, anybody. Uh, some some troll on the internet, you know, some some idiot with a podcast. We've all been in arguments before where we have to concede a point, but we refuse to. And so Beast is being called out on his behavior here, and rather than just taking his lumps and being like, you know what, you have a point, he doubles down and he tries to flip it. And he, d- he makes this weird false equivalence, and he tries to compare the heinous act that he did to a comparatively benign one that someone else did. It's like, it's, I know whataboutism is like a term that gets bandied around a lot nowadays, which is kind of annoying because it's... Uh, well, it's annoying for several reasons, um, many of which it's because it's uh, assuaging the guilt of one side in, in pursuit of um, expressing guilt on another, projecting guilt on another, when, you know, in some situations, everybody's bad, you know? But this is like ultimate whataboutism. He's like, hey, I did this, but look what you're doing. Look what you're doing here. And she's just like, are you crazy? That doesn't make any sense at all. But I like it because it doesn't make sense. And it shows that Beast is desperately clinging to his own um, his own intrinsic feelings that he's doing the right thing. You know, it's like, hey, I'm not bad. You're just as bad as me. You're, we're, we're all doing stuff for the same cause here. We're all on the same side, and we're both doing things that are morally ambiguous. And we can argue that the terraformation of a planet is morally ambiguous, right? Uh, it's not outright evil. Whereas beasts can be looked at as both amoral and <laughs> definitely more likely to be considered evil than uh, than what the uh, Krakoans did on Mars. So I'm definitely taking the scenic route here, but um, I like Beast trying to justify things here because you get the feeling that he's he's not trying to justify it so much to everyone around him as much as he is trying to justify it to himself. Um, I don't know if this is leading to a redemption arc. I don't know if there is a redemption arc for Beast at this point, um, other than a, you know, flat reset. Uh, we just, we don't know. And as someone who has been a huge fan of Beast for, you know, 30 plus years now, it's, uh, 
it's a toughie. It's a toughie for me personally. I, I would like to see Beast. I would like to see Beast serve better. And uh, uh, one of the questions I've been asking, as I mentioned here on uh, on different groups, is uh, is Beast's behavior. And a lot of people are pointing out that uh, Beast has been written sociopathically, or at least um, throwing caution to the wind as far back as the mid two thousands. You know. And into bringing the original five up, uh, the all-new X-Men stuff. And yes, yes, there is definitely um, there's definitely an argument to be made for that, right? But as I talked about a minute ago with uh, suspension of disbelief in as far as comparing comic book things to real-life things, I look at Hank bringing the original five to the, to the present as too comic booky to really get hung up on. Was it amoral? Sure. Was it unethical? Yeah. Was it dumb? Yes. <laughs> I mean, threatening the entire space-time continuum so he can kind of needle Cyclops in the side? Yeah, that's, uh, that's the old, uh, you know, hitting a fly with a bazooka. You know, that's overselling it a bit there, and it's a uh, not a good look. That said, it's comic booky. So you can kind of, I can personally, I can't, I can't speak for everybody, but I can kind of massage it as being just another layer of comic book weirdness. Not a good look. I don't like it. Uh, I mean, some of the stories that came out of it were good, but I don't like the actual beast going back in time and doing what he did. Don't like it. But now we're in, we've crossed over that line. You know, we have beast committing atrocities that we can relate to on a human level, on a real-world human level. He's killing people, you know? This is no longer comic book silliness, comic book pseudoscience, comic book villainy. This is flat-out human villainy, person villainy. And uh, that's why I ask the question now uh, about his sociopathic behavior and his depiction. Certainly not to undersell what he's done before now. That is questionable. But on a human level, I feel like what he's doing now is... um, is, is going to be a lot harder to to walk back. So that's kind of why I obsess on the Beast's behavior at this point. But we'll put a pin in that now. Um, if anybody has any thoughts on Beast, I would love to hear them. Um, agree, disagree, whatever. I'd, I'd love to discuss it further. Uh, this is one of my uh, very favorite subjects to talk about in this era. Now, finally, one last thing we got to talk about is that boat. Now, a theory that I had uh, floated several episodes back had to do with those crystals. You know, the Shi'ar crystals here that Emma Frost didn't remember ordering from the Shi'ar. The Shi'ar was certainly sure it was her that ordered them. And I suggested maybe it was Mystique that did so, right? And uh, maybe those crystals have something to do with bringing Destiny back. And uh, we had a sinister secret that was about, uh, you know, she always gets what she wants. And uh, she's going to do this thing with the gift and... It was very, uh, it alluded to the upcoming Inferno event here uh, with Mystique burning the island down or doing whatever she's going to do to the island here. And I don't think it was any mistake that the Marauder was on fire when it uh, was docked at Madripoor. And the fact that we didn't see who attacked Christian Frost, I mean, it could very well have been Mystique. It could have been Mystique uh, as someone else on board the boat who would have never been given a second look who then either turned back into Mystique or just, you know, deep-sixed Christian Frost or whatever uh, in, a, in any event, and then just claimed the loot. I think that's where we're headed here. I think this was a seminal scene in the uh, the upcoming, you know, the, the next next event in the X-Men book. So 
really cool stuff. I like uh, I like the slow burn on that. I think my only problem with it is that I'm going to be disappointed if this isn't the way that it turns out uh, because I've invested so much of my mental energy into it being this way. But uh, I think that's all I have to say about this issue of Wolverine. Yes, it wasn't X-Force. It was Wolverine. I guess the books are even now, right? Uh, During X of Swords, uh, Wolverine kind of co-opted that issue of X-Force. Here we have X-Force co-opting an issue of Wolverine. So... Even Steven at this point, we'll just uh, we'll just move forward. But uh, that's all I got to say about that. I, I look forward to hearing your guys' thoughts on this issue and this event. And speaking of which, let's hop into the mailbag. We've got one letter today, and it's uh, from Damien, and it's about our favorite book, or one of our favorite books here, Way of X number two. Uh, Damien says, So a couple of messages ago, I mentioned that I added Children of the Atom to my must-buy list, but neglected to mention that Way of X is also added. I'm buying the most ongoing X-Books in years. Marauders, Children of the Atom, Way of X, New Mutants, Hellions, and probably X-Men when it relaunches. Six X-Books. That seems impossible. Well, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good. There's a lot of good here. Uh, despite the fact that I've been complaining a lot lately, there is a lot of, uh, a lot of good books out there. Uh, Marauders has been, as we've talked about, Marauders has been probably the most solid book of the entire line uh, since Jump Street, right? Uh, Way of X is phenomenal. Uh, new Mutants is a lot of fun since the New Direction post-Exit 10s. Hellions, I don't know that Hellions has had a bad issue yet. Uh, the new X-Men, uh, Jerry Duggan has not done any wrong by us yet, so definitely looking forward to that. I, I haven't, you know, I, I don't have it in the house yet, but uh, certainly looking forward to seeing how that uh, is going to play out. Uh, just imagine had X-Force not been cancelled. I mean, X-Factor not been cancelled. You'd, you'd have seven. <laughs> you'd have seven ongoing books. Craziness. Uh, Damien continues, This issue is just phenomenal work. To mix philosophical content with bloody onslaught is hitting genius levels of comics. The character work is also on point. It's just marvelous. And you're right. I mean, I couldn't imagine anyone handling onslaught in a way that would... Uh, Make you stop and think, and also make you realize that everything kind of makes sense here, right? Uh, the patchwork man gimmick as, as a whole, it just works. It works really well here. Um, having Magnino and Xavier in such close quarters, and I don't know how this onslaught thing is going to play out, but having them in such close quarters here, I don't know if that's some sort of uh, subconscious um, allowing of the of the minds to merge again. I... Don't know if this is something going on from the underground uh, to keep them in check. Uh, Whatever the case, I am definitely in for it, and I'm looking forward to it very much. I'm just hopeful that Way of X will survive um, the upcoming Onslaught one-shot. I hope that's not being presented as like a finale to this arc and just shuffling it away. Again, I don't know how much... How much longevity a book like Way of X has? Um, I know I would read it anytime it comes out if it's if it keeps up this level of quality. But as a story, um, I mean, we've talked about this uh, throughout the run so far that the original plan, at least as far as we've been told, was that the Dawn of X, Way of X, Reign of X, the, the whole the whole Hickman era was going to be comprised of several short running ongoings, right? Things that run a dozen or so issues before being, you know, removed, rebooted, replaced. And uh, we didn't get to see that initially, uh, probably due to um, the COVID hiatus, in addition to um, unexpectedly high sales on the initial Dawn of X launch. 
And so we might be getting into that kind of look now. So Way of X might be short-lived. Hellions, I, I don't think Hellions is going to make it past Inferno. Um, I'm worried that Way of X won't make it past the uh, the upcoming onslaught one shot. Eh, we'll we'll see, we'll see. Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. But uh, thank you so much for writing in about Way of X and allowing me to you know gush more about it. So thank you so much. Uh, next, we've got a couple of messages here from uh, various Facebook groups that I've joined over the past uh, week or so, just in order to try to take the temperature of the fan base here, um, try to expand my horizons, and uh, you know maybe even spread the word about the show a little bit. Just let folks know that it is a thing that exists, and it might be something that they uh, that they enjoy, uh, even you know just once or twice. So I did ask. A lot of the questions that we've been asking from the very start here, just to check and see how uh, some other folks had uh, received the big shoe drop moments of the very early, you know, the the Hox Pox books and uh, the very early Dawn of X here. So I asked the question, you know, what were your thoughts on Mora being a mutant? What were your thoughts on the Resurrection Protocols? And what were your thoughts on the Crucible? And I got a handful of responses here. We're just going to cover two of them today, and uh, I'm going to pepper those responses and some more responses to some other questions I asked uh, throughout the next handful of episodes, and maybe this will just become a regular segment on the show. But we're going to start with Charles, who answered in the X-Men community on Facebook. Now, he says, The revelation and impact of Maura McTaggart being a mutant, which can be reincarnated and relive the present with the memories of her past lives, has changed the X-Men completely from how they lived, acted, and fought for in principle. She practically altered the X-Men entirely, just as much as the Age of Apocalypse once did, for better or for worse. It's an alteration that's created many two questions yet to be answered, if they will ever be, on the X-Men history and their influence upon the greater universe as a whole, which are now changed. For example, the Phoenix Saga and Onslaught. And that's funny, because uh, when I started the show, anybody who's listened to the old episodes, uh, A, thank you, B, I'm sorry, <laughs> and C, you'll probably remember... That I was a little bit precious about my X-Men history And I still kind of am, of course But I was much more fearful That everything was going away Or everything was being altered in an uh, Like a prima facie sort of way uh, On the face of it, you know Something that will change the way we look at things Like almost on a physical level Rather than like a behind-the-scenes sort of way like, Like they're doing it, you know The Mora thing we're not supposed to know about that, right? Uh, the the greater Marvel Universe doesn't know about that, at least uh, at the present. So everything happened exactly how we saw it. There's just an, another layer underneath it. And I do, I do like that. I'm a huge fan of lore, so I'm always a fan of adding things to lore, especially, especially when we can make it make sense, right? Now, Charles continues, uh, The Resurrection Protocols are both an amazing and terrifying prospect. On one hand, it allows mutants that have once died or recently killed to return while removing any diseases and disabilities. This makes them technically immortal and unstoppable. On the other hand, it makes the concept of death and the dangers of it pointless to take caution toward protecting life, while the reborn persons are questionably no longer original in body, mind, and soul. They could be altered into becoming totally different persons of personalities and identities, or possibly not even be human fundamentally due to the process involving the Krakoa floral organism. Now, those are all great points here, and that's uh, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about uh, plenty on the show. Uh, the idea that uh, what what is a soul, right? Uh, are these characters original in any way? 
it's uh, it's definitely something that's going to be hard for Marvel to walk back unless there's going to be some weird, you know, bait and switch reveal at the end of this, which we've theorized about, right? We've talked about what if the originals are all underground feeding Krakoa right now, and everybody that we've been seeing for the past couple of years is is basically a clone, right? They are clones. I mean, today in this issue, we have Beast controlling an entire nation. Who's to say Krakoa ain't doing that with the X-Men? I mean, that's one of our old theories from way back in the day when we well, when we first saw the Crucible and saw these uh, saw these folks cheering for the death of their friends. You know, it's uh, there's definitely some element to control here. So I, I do wonder. I do wonder. Uh, Charles continues. The Crucible is a pointless Darwinian contest created by Apocalypse to earn the genetic purification of resurrection for those who are still alive and yet to die at all. Technically, it's both a blood sport for a new mutant kind of society of Krakoa and a battle to the death to separate those who are worthy to forever cheat death and sickness from those who would die and stay dead with what life they led before. Just like the Resurrection Protocols, the Crucible makes the worth of life seem cheap and replaceable for mutants and mutants only. In addition, while anyone who's not a mutant or can't survive as a mutant are not worth the gift of immortality and immortal health, and they are just to be destroyed. And yeah, the Crucible is a challenging one, isn't it? I, uh, I love talking about the Crucible because simply because it is so challenging and because it does evoke such a visceral reaction. I don't know that I've had anybody just kind of shrug their shoulders at the Crucible. It's like um, I, I explained the Crucible to several uh, lapsed X-Men fans, uh, I mean, during episode 200, where we had uh, a slew of, uh, of wonderful guests on, some of them were not aware of the Crucible. And I got to explain that to them and get their reaction. And, and it was never just a, oh, oh, well. It was always like a, wow, you know, this is a big deal. And you either love it for the opportunities that it provides you, or you hate it just on a, like, a guttural level here. It's like they are really creating a sport out of death. That's how little they value life now. And, uh, I mean, seeing... We talked a little bit about a caste system, right? As we talked about uh, New Mutants of late, with uh, Amal Farouk and his irregulars being, like, classed below those characters who can pass as human. Of course, there's also that caste of former mutants, you know, depowered mutants who are viewed as being lesser than. And it's almost as though they have something to be ashamed of in the fact that, you know, they lost their powers on M-Day. Not not by their own fault, of course, but it's it's the culture that Krakoa is building and the people in charge of Krakoa. I mean, the whole Autumn Quarter of the original um, Quiet Council, Magneto, Professor X, and Apocalypse, they're forming this culture. And it's, uh, as we've seen in Way of X, part of this culture is cultural touchstones, and the Crucible is definitely one of them. It's a interesting topic, a challenging topic, but uh, definitely one I enjoy talking about. And I want to thank you so much, Charles, for, uh, for writing in and sharing your thoughts. And uh, I hope to see you again sometime soon, uh, perhaps in the, uh, in the mailbag. So thanks again. Uh, next, we got a message from Ben in the Age of the X-Men group. And as I uh, presented this topic, I gave a little bit of a history on my ex lapsedness and uh, mentioned that I started to take a step back during Marvel's uh, push of the Inhumans over the X-Men, and then I totally checked out around the time of the color books, you know, the gold and the blue. And Ben wrote in, he says, it looks like you checked out around the same time I did. 
I found digital copies of the Extraordinary X-Men run from that timeline in my local library, and I've been reading them. It's some of the worst X-Men stories ever. They had writers that didn't even understand the characters they were working with. I started reading again about a year before The Hawks. Now, the Extraordinary run, um, I believe that was Jeff Lemire, um, or was it Charles Soule? I know they were both involved in the, the X-Books around that time, but uh, yeah, I, I was kind of checking, around, checking out around that time as well. I think the last story that I read was uh, when I was reviewing Marvel books for, uh, for the Weird Science website. I did the... It was that weird Apocalypse crossover. I don't remember if it was like Apocalypse Wars or Apo- Blood of Apocalypse or something like that. It was... Uh, like three issues of All New, three issues of Uncanny, and three issues of Extraordinary. They all told different stories, the three series, um, but it was a, a crossover event of sorts, kind of a uh, kind of like a Hellfire Gala, you know, where they're all the, all the books are kind of doing their own thing from their own point of view, but they're all kind of branded under the same the same brand, the same story arc. And I uh, I kind of checked out after that. Um, I really just stayed on the fringes and waited for anything to happen that might reignite my spark for the for the franchise. And then Golden Blue happened, and you know, being being a person who came into the X books back in 1992, I mean, Blue and Gold really speaks to me. And I tried them, and I that's when I ran for the hills, as uh, has been you know chronicled here on this program and uh, many other places. Anywhere, anywhere anybody will let me talk about the X Men, I will. Probably tell that story. Ben continues. I actually think that Mora as a mutant makes a lot of sense. I think her powers are really interesting. That said, a lot of the old stories she was in don't make sense now because supposedly she would have had all this knowledge the whole time. So I think it's pluses and minuses. I do like I do love the idea of her being this mysterious figure that's ruling the mutant world from the shadows. I'm interested to see what they end up doing with her. Now I tell you what, uh, one of the things I'm most looking forward to about uh, the Essential X lapsed, if uh, if that continues to be a thing for the next you know year plus, uh, is revisiting these early more appearances here and seeing seeing what works, seeing what doesn't. Um, I, I've talked a lot, I've gushed a lot about Paul O'Brien. You know, Paul O'Brien of the X Axis, currently of uh, House to Astonish, um, definitely a giant among. X-Men analyzers and uh, fans Just uh, a fantastic writer Fantastic personality Now I am woefully behind On his uh, on his musings At House to Astonish And his uh, analysis And his, uh, what's that word I'm looking for Annotations He's been annotating the entire um, Hox, Pox, Doc, Sox, Rocks run And uh, I've I started reading His earliest posts But he also had something called The Complete Mora you know, where or Moira. If, uh, uh, for anybody new who's listening, I, I call Moira Mora because uh, I got yelled at for saying Moira when I was a kid once. So I, I've told that story before. If anybody needs me to tell it again, let me know and I will, uh, I'll tell it again. Anyway, he did something called The Complete Mora, where he was uh, going through all the early Mora appearances. And I don't know if he was trying to jive it with what Hickman did in, uh, in Pox number one or Hawks number two or whatever it was. But uh, I haven't gotten around to reading it yet, so I probably should, and then check back in. Uh, in any event, I, I think you all should uh, head over to House to Astonish and read Paul O'Brien's work, because it is uh, fantastic. Uh, next, uh, Ben continues. I actually like the resurrection protocols. For one thing, it just makes m- more sense that characters can die and come back now. It's been cool to see a lot of the old-school dead characters back, even if it's just in the background. I think the mechanics of it are interesting. 
It's a great use of those characters. I'll admit I, I miss seeing Hope and Tempest in battle. I think the Resurrection Protocols help to establish that the mutants now live in a culture and society that's truly their own. It's very <clears throat> post-human. One thing I don't understand is, is it really seems like all five members of the five should be considered Omega Mutants. Well, let's start at the end there. I definitely agree that those characters should be all considered Omega Mutants since they can, you know, create life, right? They can actually cheat death. Um, I, I want to say only, of the five, only Proteus... Oh, no, Proteus and Elixir, I think, are both considered Omegas, but the others are not yet. Maybe Hope. I don't... Maybe Hope. I, I don't... Don't recall off the top of my head. But as for the uh, protocols here... um. I'm kind of hot and cold on the protocols. I like it as a concept. I like it as a way to kind of flip the script on what we usually pay attention to in a comic book, right? We pay attention to, we've been trained to pay attention to mortality. You know, we fear for the deaths of our characters, especially of late where characters just die a lot. The Resurrection Protocols kind of put a pin in that. We don't so much worry about that anymore, so we can focus on other things. We can focus on on the, you know, Krakoan government. We can focus on secrets in the shadows. We can focus on things that aren't mortality-related. I like it in that regard, um, but as mentioned, I think it's something that's been... It's been abused. It's been something we go back to way too often, because... It's hard to break it down, right? We're in a post-death society, and yet we are still using death as a cliffhanger and as a, uh, as a, as a story beat. It's like the creators want to have it both ways, right? Both that we're not supposed to worry about death, but here's a death, worry about it. You know, it's, I don't know, it's, uh, it's, I'm hot and cold. <laughs> I'm hot and cold in it. Uh, ben continues. The Crucible freaks me out, and I think it's supposed to. It's got major violent cult vibe to it. It kind of reinforces the whole idea that maybe the X-Men have become the villains. Like, it's a perfect example of why groups like the Avengers or the Fantastic Four are concerned, yet they're still friendly to the X-Men. What freaks me out about it the most isn't necessarily the combat and the required death in order to regain your powers. What freaks me out, and this is a goodie, is that the crowd is cheering this on. It's kind of like a weird hedonistic vibe. But everything on the island kind of has that weird hedonistic vibe as it is. And, well, that basically sums up my entire thought process on The Crucible here. The the cheering crowd is what really gets to me here. And um, I mentioned in uh, Way of X number one, which was as close to as perfect a book we're going to get, that the only thing I would have changed about that issue is I would have had the crowd start booing Nightcrawler when he tried to interfere in the Crucible. ah, That's such a missed opportunity. I I would have loved that. You know, he gets involved because he just doesn't, he's done. You know, he doesn't think this is the way to do things, and the crowd doesn't really react to him. You know, had the crowd started booing him, throwing garbage at him, just getting him out of there so they can see the death that they were there to see. I would have loved it, but um, not definitely. You're uh, you're right there on the same wavelength. Uh, we are uh, we are in total agreement with the Crucible. It's a fascinating yet horribly terrifying thing. But uh, I do want to thank you so much for taking the time to reply to that uh, question there, Ben. And I uh, hope to see you again somewhere down the line as well. Now, before we cut out of here, we do have a little bit of news. Very little, in fact. Here, uh, we got a question as to whether or not this line is going to bloat. A little bit more. Uh, is Chris Claremont working on a Gambit series? Hmm. Now, we read X-Men number 21, right? 
and Rogue was uh, accepted into the X-Men. She is now on the team. And they ask Gambit, like, hey, what are your plans now? And he goes, ah, don't worry about me, I got plans. Well, do those plans include being part of a series written by his co-creator, Chris Claremont? Well, let's go to Chris Claremont's Instagram here. He says he took a picture of himself, uh, or not of himself, but of his view. It looks like a storm's rolling in on Long Island. And as a Long Island expat myself, um, that could be a very pretty and somewhat terrifying scene, just like the image he had snapped here. He says, sitting by the shore of the bay, watching the storm roll in, grabbing a tad of reward time after finishing GA star 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 T number three. Well, a lot of folks, uh, myself included, think that uh, GA asterisk 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 T is a gambit. And maybe we will be seeing Chris Claremont on a Gambit book. And uh, I tell you, that's an interesting prospect. Um, I first saw this news on Bleeding Cool, and uh, they alluded to the uh, to the idea that Claremont isn't exactly on board with all this Krakoa stuff. They didn't go into any detail, and I was unable to come up with uh, you know any kind of explanation in my uh, admittedly brief search of the topic. But you know, this uh, this could be interesting. This could be interesting, so we will uh, just stand by and uh, wait for whatever solicits may come. But uh, that's the news. That's the show. Uh, if you'd like to be part of the show, you could find me several different ways. I'm on Twitter at Ace Comics, on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can write an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call into the X Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. Um, you can go to chrisoninfinitearts.com for blog posts and show notes. You could chat us up on Facebook. The little group is 90s X-Men. Finally, for the complete archives and everything Chris and Reggie, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And while you're there, if you like what you hear or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to spread the word. Share the show. Tell a friend or two. Um, Hey, if you know any other Facebook groups that might be interested in the show or just discussing the X-Men books, uh, hit me up. Let me know, and uh, we will uh, explore those options together. But uh, that will do it for today. I would like to thank you all so much for allowing me to reside in your ears for about 50 minutes now. That's, uh, that's an awful long time to be around me, so I thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. See ya.